Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 125. They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth even forever. For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous. Lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. Do good, O Lord, unto those that be good. And to them that are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside unto their crooked ways. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray together. Grant us, O Lord, so firmly to trust in Thee, that the whirlwind of the enemy may not move us. Establish our faith in Mount Zion, and ever be round about Thy people, lest the multitude of Thy saints should desire to put their hand unto wickedness. Make us to despise the pleasures of this world, that we might receive and attain unto Thy bounty and holy light. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father, who standeth round about his people. Glory be to the Son, the peace upon Israel. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, who doeth good unto those that are good and true of heart. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. Well, we come now to question 11 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. You can find this on page 5. So let's read this together and then... Uh, consider its truth. Uh, Question 11 asks, what are God's works of providence? Answer, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. In Philippians 4, 6, the apostle Paul says to the church, be anxious for nothing. In Luke 12, Jesus says to his disciples, Do not worry about your life. The most frequent command in the entirety of Scripture is, Do not be afraid or fear not. How is obedience to any of these commands possible? Unbelief comes naturally to sinners, and therefore when Jesus says, Don't worry, or the apostle says, Don't be anxious, sinners get annoyed and treat these commands as if they are totally unrealistic or even impossible to keep. Who does God think he is telling me not to worry? Well, far from being humanly impossible, God wants us to be free of fear and anxiety. And in scripture, he has supplied us with the truth that leads us to that freedom. That liberating truth is what is set forth here and summarized in this catechism answer. Namely, that God absolutely preserves and governs all creatures and everything they do. 
And because God's governing comes from a most holy, wise, and loving Father, we can be assured that if we belong to Him, then whatever happens is somehow working for our good, even if we can't understand or see it. The catechism is just putting into theological terms that simple song we used to teach to little children. He's got the whole world in his hands. This doctrine of God's providence can either be received as a great comfort to your soul or, as some have taken it, as a great invasion of your privacy. The famous atheist Christopher Hitchens scoffed at this idea that there was someone in heaven watching him all the time who could even see what he was thinking. For Christopher Hitchens, God's providence was an absurd and intolerable doctrine that should make us all paranoid. Jesus, on the other hand, uses this same doctrine that haunted Christopher Hitchens to comfort and quiet his fearful disciples. What does Jesus say after telling them, not to worry. He says, consider the ravens. Think about birds. Consider the flowers. Go take a walk through the garden and look at how God takes care of his creation. And then reason from God's care for those little things which are so insignificant compared to you who are made in his image and who he died to save and conclude from his care for those insignificant things that God will always take care of you. He will always give you exactly what you need. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If God clothes the grass, which is here today and gone tomorrow, of course he is going to clothe you. God is wielding all of human history, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for the glory of his name and the good of his people. That is the promise and that is the comfort of this catechism that God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions is his act and work of providence, and it is all for our good. To contemplate this truth should remind us of our need to confess our sins. So as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's Covenant Church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. These are the words of God. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all cities, and outwent them, and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep, not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. 
And when the day was come, and when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away, that they may go into the country round about, and into the villages, and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. He answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat, and they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred penny worth of bread, and give them to eat? He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say, Five and two fishes. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and brake the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. Let's pray. Father, you are the God who satisfies the desire of every living thing. We thank you for giving us Christ to be the bread of life for us. And ask that you would nourish us now by your word and spirit. For we ask this in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen. Well, we come now in Mark's gospel to one of the most famous miracles in Jesus' ministry, the feeding of the 5,000. This is actually uh, the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the gospels, besides Jesus' resurrection. And uh, when you look at this story in each of the gospels, each of the gospel writers does something a little bit different with it. And here, Mark's emphasis is on the contrast between a feast that Jesus prepares and uh, the feast that King Herod prepares. Uh, Last week, we saw that Herod prepares a feast for his nobles and governing officials. And in a very sick twist of events, the head of John the Baptist is brought out on a serving dish. What is the feast of the wicked? It is to have a prophet on a platter. Jesus, on the other hand, is the good shepherd. He is the true king, and unlike Herod and his court who devour the sheep, Jesus feeds the sheep, both physically and spiritually. The crowds are hungry for teaching, and so Jesus feeds them God's word. And when the day is spent and their bodies are hungry, Jesus miraculously multiplies bread and fish to feed their bodies as well. Who else can do this but God alone? Who else can make bread and fish multiply but the one who created bread and fish in the first place? We continue to see on every single page of Mark's gospel that we are given, both, uh, we are given signs, both implicit and explicit, that Jesus is the Son of God. This is, of course, what we should expect because the opening words of this gospel are the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark is just hammering home this thesis that Jesus is divine, and uh, we are going to continue to hear this just about every uh, single, in every single sermon. This is like the main point. Uh, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And the disciples continue to not understand that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He's the promised Messianic King. And uh, here in this scene where he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, we presume, Uh, We are given, again, another visual fulfillment of many Old Testament 
prophecies. So let's walk through our text together, and I'll draw out uh, how Jesus fulfills uh, some of these prophets, God, uh, some of these promises God made through the prophets. Uh, starting in verse 30, it says, And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. We remember that earlier in this chapter, in verses 7 to 13, Jesus called, anointed, and commissioned the twelve to go forth preaching in the surrounding villages. We were told that they all cast out demons, they healed the sick, but before we were given a full report of their ministry, Mark just inserted this flashback to describe the death of John the Baptist. So all of last week was a a flashback, and now we're returning to real time. So the disciples are coming back from their short-term missionary trip. Uh, Mark Mark calls the disciples apostles here. Uh, Literally, this just means sent ones. And this is the only time they are called apostles in this gospel. Uh, These apostles tell Jesus about the exorcisms, about the healings, and they also tell him what they had taught. And we presume also uh, they told them the response that they received. Remember, Jesus said, if they reject you, then uh, shake the dust off of your sandals. So the disciples come back. Uh, We uh, imagine they're energized. They're amazed at the power uh, that has been displayed uh, of God through their hands. And they're giving a report to Jesus. Jesus, seeing that they did uh, what he commanded, now invites them for a little retreat. Verse 31. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. Uh, Notice again we have this theme, this motif of the wilderness, the deserted place. And this is a place where God meets with his people. The wilderness is especially where God meets with his prophets, his spokesmen. And that was, of course, the place where John the Baptist's voice used to be heard. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John baptized in the wilderness, but now that Herod has beheaded him, it falls to Jesus to pick up Elijah's mantle. Who was the person that surpassed Elijah? It was Elisha. And this is who Jesus is. Jesus is given a double portion of the Spirit. Uh, Elisha does twice as many miracles as Elijah. And Jesus comes receiving the fullness of the Spirit, far surpassing John, and yet picking up his mantle. So Jesus is John resurrected in a certain way, as uh, Herod uh, was scared that he was. And Jesus continues to show his disciples the way of the Lord. Where? Does that way lead? It leads back into the wilderness. However, uh, rather than finding a restful retreat from the crowds and ministry, uh, the crowds and the ministry follow them. Verses 32 to 33. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And the people saw them departing. Kind of makes you wonder how private this this really was. Uh, The people saw them departing, and many knew him. And ran afoot thither out of all cities, and outwent them, and came together unto him. So you can imagine the scene. They're tired. They're hungry. uh, They're wanting some rest. And so uh, they get in the boat, and as they are casting off from shore, uh, someone recognizes them. They think they're going to get a little uh, rest and relaxation, some peace and quiet. But people see them departing and start to run after them. 
uh, it would have been a really odd thing being a disciple of Jesus. You have uh, really no privacy. The boat is kind of the only place that you can get away from the crowds. So uh, this is where they are. They're, they're in the boat, and yet they see people running on the shore to the place that they are going. These people are so desperate to be with Jesus, it says that they run ahead of the boat. It says it, uh, they outwent them, and they get to Jesus' destination before him. And this was not just uh, a few of the young people who have energy to run. Right? We, we see later, this is thousands. It says, they ran afoot out of all cities. So the image here is of this stampede, this great uh, riot of people. I mean, 5,000 men is a big group of people, uh, not to mention a women and children. So this is a huge group, uh, like a stampede of running sheep that are trying to chase down Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Verse 34, And Jesus, when he came out, that is, out of the boat, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep, not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus gets out of the boat. He sees this mob, this crowd, and it says he was moved with compassion toward them. Um, in uh, Greek, this word for moved with compassion is this very uh, visceral term. If you remember our series on Philippians, remember when we learned that Greek word splankna? It's this kind of like, it's your innards, it's your guts, it's the place that if you're nervous or excited or in love or whatever you're feeling, you feel it right here. That's, that's the word here for describing uh, Jesus' feeling towards these people. His, his stomach is like tied up in knots over what he saw. He's moved with compassion in the depths of his being. The reason for this stomach-turning pity, this compassion, is that the people are like sheep without a shepherd. They are wandering in herds and hungry, but no one is there to feed them. They are lost in the woods and in need of rescue, healing, and love, but no one is there to give that to them. This is the state of many millions of Americans today, even many millions who call themselves Christians. They are lost. They are lonely. They are easily led astray by the things they read and watch and hear on the internet. One of the reasons church membership is so important is because we all need a shepherd. We all need accountability. We all need someone to watch over and protect our souls. This is what Paul commands in Hebrews 13, 7. It says, remember them. Remember them which have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God whose faith follow or imitate, considering the end of their conversation or the, their manner of life. Jesus Christ is, of course, our chief shepherd, but he has appointed under shepherds, pastors and elders to care for his flock, to feed the sheep and tend to them. There are millions of professing Christians who do not go to church, who have no real relationship with their pastor or elders and think that just you know, watching a sermon online or getting together with a few friends for a Bible study is all they need to be spiritually healthy. But this is so, so far from the picture of the church that we find in Scripture. In Acts, we see the church meeting together in person regularly. In person, regularly. At times, they were even gathering daily in the temple for worship. They're breaking bread in one another's houses, Acts 2, 42. 
The biblical picture then of the church is one that has structure, that has hierarchy, that has government, that has routine, that has ritual, and a whole lot of eating together. That is how God wants the sheep to be organized and cared for. And when the shepherds, when the leaders fail in this duty, the sheep wander. That's just what sheep do. And this is what Jesus finds when he comes to Galilee, and it grieves him. It grieves him deeply. What is God's heart towards a lost and wandering nation? Well, Jesus reveals that he is moved in the depths of his being with compassion and pity. God is sad at the lostness of these Galileans. These are the very people that King Herod is supposed to protect. A king is a shepherd. This is one of the images in scripture. A king is a shepherd. And uh, Herod is supposed to be protecting and caring for these people. But where is he? Where is Herod? He is away. He's busy at court. He's feasting sumptuously and murdering their prophet. The only faithful shepherd they had in John the Baptist, Herod executes. This phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is actually a quotation from the mouth of Moses back in the book of Numbers. So uh, in Numbers 27, God is talking to Moses about a succession plan. So because of Moses' sin, he's not going to be allowed to lead the people into the promised land. And this is what Moses says to God. He says, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, which may go out before them and which may go in before them and which may lead them out, and which may bring them in. That the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said unto Moses, so here's God's answer. Take thee Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay thine hand upon him. So the nation of Israel are the sheep. The shepherd is their king, their leader. And who does God appoint so that they are not like sheep without a shepherd? Well, God appoints Joshua. Of course, we know Joshua is just the Hebrew form of the name Jesus. In Greek, this is Jesus. So, Jesus or Yehoshua, Joshua, this literally means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. So, uh, very literally, who is the one who shepherds Israel? It's Yahweh saves. It's Yahweh saves. Just as God appointed Joshua to lead his flock Israel into the promised land, so, so also God sent forth his beloved son, our Lord Jesus, to lead us into his kingdom. Do you see uh, the parallel here? Well, how then does our Joshua lead us? Verse 34 tells us, he began to teach them many things. The mark of a true shepherd is to give the word of God unto the people. The shepherd is like a cook or a chef who rightly divides the word and then apportions it out to all who will hear. And notice the order in which Jesus feeds this crowd. First, he feeds them spiritually the word of God, and only after that does he feed them physically. This ordering and priority is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 4.4, 4, quoting Deuteronomy 8. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. We read this story and are rightly amazed that Jesus can multiply loaves and fishes into an abundance that feeds thousands. But think about it. What is of more lasting value? The feeding of someone's body for a meal 
or the feeding of someone's soul that is going to live or perish eternally? Which meal has a more lasting impact? Food is good, can even be great, and it is necessary for us to exist, but the word of God is even more so. This is the whole purpose for this miracle that we are about to read. It is to signify that the teaching of Jesus, the preaching of God's word, the food of the kingdom, is unlimited in supply. You just need faithful shepherds to give it out. So keep that in mind. This is not uh, just a miracle about people having their bellies filled. There's a lot more going on here. So keep that in mind as we watch how this miracle plays out. Verses 35 to 36. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away, that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. Now remember, the disciples have just returned from their short-term missionary trip. They got that spiritual high. And then Jesus gives them a little test of their faith. Uh, Remember, Jesus told them explicitly when they went on that journey to not bring bread. He said, don't bring food. Don't even bring a little, uh, you know, knapsack to put extra provisions in. Just trust God to provide what you need. Well, did God provide for them? Yes, they survived. They're back. God provided. And so here now is a new test for their faith. Can God provide for even this many? I suspect that the thought did not even cross their minds to try to feed this many people. They recognize it's getting late. They know they don't have enough food to feed this crowd. And so it's quite reasonable to tell Jesus, hey, uh, why don't we send everyone home and reconvene tomorrow? Well, how does Jesus respond? Verse 37, Jesus answered and said unto them, you give them something to eat. Give ye them to eat. And the disciples say unto him, Okay, shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? The disciples think Jesus is just saying, why don't you guys go into the town and then come back? So they think Jesus is sending them on an errand. And so their next thought is, well, uh, we don't got that kind of money. (laughs) Haven't you noticed we've been following you, Uh, right? Uh, And by the way, 200 pennies, penny worth is not $2, okay? Uh, inflation isn't maybe that bad, but uh, 200 penny worth or denarii in, uh, in Greek is roughly 200 days worth of wages. So th- this is a lot of money. This is a really big crowd. So, you know, you, you can drain your, your 401k just to feed uh, these people for one meal, right? That's, that's the kind of situation the disciples are encountering here. So verse 38, Jesus says unto them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they knew, they say five and two fishes. The the disciples are clearly still confused at this point. And they probably think Jesus' request is a little pointless. Obviously, five loaves, two fishes are not enough to go around. Nevertheless, Jesus says, make everyone sit down. Jesus Jesus is, is setting this up, okay? The disciples are very confused. This is all we've got. And Jesus says, all right, this is good. Uh, Yeah, have everyone sit down. The anticipation is building. Uh, Verse 39 to 40, and he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass, and they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. Now, if you're an attentive reader, you should notice kind of two peculiar details here. Uh, The first is that Jesus makes the people to sit down 
upon the green grass. This is not just a detail to give color to the scene, okay? Uh, That's just not how the Bible is written. And this should strike you as a little odd because we're told they're in a a deserted place, a, a wilderness. So where is all of this green grass that you know, 5,000 people are going to sit down on. Uh, We know from the other Gospels that this is taking place in the springtime uh, before Passover. And so somehow uh, there's wilderness and yet there's grass here, right? Let let he who is spiritual consider the meaning of this. Well, uh, what, what Mark is doing, at least part of what he is doing, is trying to call to mind by this detail a psalm that probably everyone knows. Psalm 23. The Lord is my... Shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in the wilderness, in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Right? What has Jesus done in this gospel? Well, he just commanded the Sea of Galilee to become still waters. And now he makes these thousands of sheep without a shepherd lie down in green pastures. And now he's going to feed them so that they have no want. Think about Psalm 23. Who is the shepherd? It's the Lord in Hebrew. This is Jehovah. This is Yahweh. This this is the one God. It's the God who is spiritual, immaterial, infinite, all of those things. That's who the shepherd is. And Mark is saying, oh, by the way, Jesus is that shepherd. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord, Yahweh saves. This is the message of every single miracle here. The second detail uh, that Mark draws out is that they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. This is a little more difficult probably for us to connect, but uh, in Exodus 18, when Jethro is saying, Moses, clearly uh, you do not have the time or energy or ability to just adjudicate you know, a million people uh, in this kingdom of Israel, you need to have some kind of court of appeal. And so he says, why don't you set up rulers over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, and over tens? Well, that's where this idea comes from. It's, this is how a government is organized. And uh, the curious thing here, the, the Greek word for sat down in ranks, it's this, it's this phrase, prosiai, prosiai. It's two words back to back. And it comes from this image of orderly planting rows in a garden bed. So these are the two images that Mark wants to give us for how these people are sitting down. He could have just said they just sat down. But he says they sat down in ranks of hundreds and fifties, and these ranks are like a gardener putting uh, whatever they're planting in very orderly, nice rows. Right? This, this is the exercise of dominion. Uh, nature is very beautiful in its wild and untamed form. Uh, But if you've ever gone to a very beautiful farm, a very beautiful garden, and you see everything orderly, there's something even kind of more beautiful about that, that now here's man and nature that has come together and made something even more beautiful than before. This This is the dominion mandate, right? Go and tend and keep the garden. This is Adam's first job. So who is Jesus? Well, he's another Adam. He is the leader of the people. He is replanting the nation of Israel. Instead of being a very disorganized mass of sheep without a shepherd, he leads them, he feeds them, and he sets them in order. 
Instead of being thorns and thistles scattered in the wilderness, he plants them in orderly rows like a skilled gardener. Remember, uh, is it Mary uh, who uh, encounters Jesus after his resurrection and she mistakes him for the gardener? Well, here's Jesus uh, anticipating that idea. Jesus is the one who comes to make people alive again. He comes to make the nation of Israel alive again. He comes to make true what they would have been singing in the temple in their psalms. Psalm 100, which, which we sing, it says, It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So by this miracle, Jesus is revealing that he is both the creator who made us and the shepherd who rules us. Psalm 104, 14 to 15 says, God causes the grass to grow for the cattle, an herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. Well, who is Jesus? He is the God who opens his hands, arms outstretched on a cross, and satisfies the desire of every living thing. Finally, we come to the miracle itself, verses 41 to 44. So that's all the setup here. And it says, And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and brake the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two, two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. Now, uh, we are not told exactly how this multiplication happened. All the gospel accounts record this, and yet they all leave it to our imagination to figure out how this happened. So, uh, kids, you, if you have some very uh, good uh, um, uh, ideas of how Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, what that might have looked like, please come tell me. So we, we don't know if the bread and fishes kind of grew in Jesus' hands as he divided them or what this might have looked like. We don't know. But what we do know is that if God, who spoke the world into existence and created everything out of nothing, well, by that same power, he can, of course, make fish and bread to multiply. Uh, in Genesis 1.28, the dominion mandate, uh, God says to Adam and Eve after the cre their creation, he says, uh, it says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Well, here Jesus is following this exact same pattern that we find at creation. He blesses, he breaks, he gives, and he multiplies. That's the pattern. That's the Christian life. God blesses you in your baptism. He breaks you open over your life. But every time you go from death, and, death to resurrection, death to resurrection, and then your fruit multiplies. God blesses Adam he breaks him open, he gives him Eve, he gives them the world, and then he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Jesus is doing with bread and fish what God commanded the human race to do at the very beginning. Our sin had frustrated that task, but in Jesus, a new creation is dawning. A new humanity that lives not by bread and fish alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We are going to see pretty much this exact same miracle again in chapter 8 when Jesus feeds the 4,000. 
And he says afterwards to, di- to his disciples, in essence, um, are you so blind? Is your heart hardened that you do not understand? Why are you thinking only in earthly terms? Don't you see that bread and fish signify something greater? They signify the multiplication of God's word, of true doctrine. He says to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. That's Mark 8, 15. So they have false food. They have false doctrine. Whereas Christ, he has the true food, the true leaven. Jesus says in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. So what do five loaves and two fish signify? They signify the word of God. They signify the word of God. Uh, The church fathers saw in these five loaves a reference to the five books of Moses, the law and the Torah. And in the two fishes, which make the bread more flavorful, they saw a reference to the Psalms and the prophets, which expound that law. Now, uh, you can take that or leave it, but whatever the case... It is clear that what Jesus is signifying by this miracle is that the entirety of the Old Testament is taken up and blessed and fulfilled in him, especially by his death and resurrection. As Jesus himself says in Luke 24, all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So when Jesus is blessing and breaking and distributing this food in super abundance, what is the real miracle? Well, the real miracle is that the message of salvation, God's word, is infinite. It's not something that we have to fight over. There is absolutely no scarcity when it comes to pure doctrine, to the word of God. You just need someone to hand it out. This is the real miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. The message, message of salvation, the doctrines contained in Scripture and the law and the prophets and the Psalms can be shared and given freely to anyone. That's amazing. And this is the real food. In Jesus, the law and the Psalms and the prophets become fruitful and multiply. The truth that was contained there in seed form becomes food that can feed the whole world. And who is going to distribute this doctrine to the people, this food? Well, the 12 apostles. At present, they are just handing out bread and fish to to people who are hungry. But after Christ's resurrection, their eyes are going to be opened, and they are going to understand the true meaning of something that they previously did. They are the shepherds, right? Jesus ascends into heaven. He says, wait in Jerusalem for my Holy Spirit. He tells to Peter after uh, he uh, rises from the dead, I want you to feed my sheep. This is what the disciples are going to do. There are 12 baskets left over, one for each disciple, one for each tribe of Israel. And Jesus wants them to know that when they preach the word of God, there will always be more than enough. Closing point of application for us. Uh, Think about the difference between your physical and spiritual appetite. If you ponder that difference, you will begin to understand more what the kingdom of heaven is like. You'll start to understand more and more what uh, eternal life is. We all know what it feels like to be hungry and then full. 
After we eat our fill, our bodily appetite goes away and that desire for food disappears. And therefore, it doesn't really matter if you have a super abundance of bread and fish or whatever your favorite dish is because your physical appetite is finite and limited. And in fact, eating more, no matter how good that thing is, will probably make you sick. However, this is not the case when it comes to the spiritual appetite. When God awakens our spiritual desire to know him, to know the truth, he awakens in us something that is infinite. As it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has placed eternity into the heart of man. C.S. Lewis famously says in Mere Christianity, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Lewis recognized that there was something inside of him that food and drink and physical pleasures could not satisfy. And when God awakens you to this reality, that you have a spiritual appetite, that you have eternity in your heart, then the only logical conclusion is that you were made for something or someone who is spirit and immaterial and infinite. Well, the gospel is that Jesus Christ is that eternal word from the Father. He is the infinite God made flesh for man. And if you want to live forever, then you are going to need spiritual food. The flesh profits nothing because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, forgive us for our lack of zeal to know you. Forgive us for being so earthly-minded, for seeking to just gratify our physical appetites, thinking about the next meal, the next vacation, the next promotion, the next thing, these things that are passing away. God, I ask that you would open our eyes to see what even the disciples did not recognize, though they were there for this miracle. They were blind to it. God, there are many amongst us who are blind to this truth. And yet we know that only you can raise the dead. Only you can give us spiritual sight and spiritual understanding. And so we ask that you would give that unto us. We pray this in Jesus' name and amen. Amen. Well, we have heard much in the sermon about the difference between physical and spiritual food. The feeding of the 5,000 was, of course, a foreshadowing of this meal, where, again, Jesus blesses and breaks and gives us himself. Here we are taught to become spiritual Christians, to look beyond the bread and the wine, these external signs, and see what they signify. They signify the body and blood of our Lord and his everlasting love for you. So come, partake in faith, see him, be nourished by the word. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this, Uh, Unlike our bodily appetites, which diminish as we feed them, the spiritual appetite actually grows as you feed it. This is why people who read the Bible regularly, say you read a couple chapters a day, you eventually find yourself wanting more and more. 
So treat God's word as it truly is, more important than physical food. And resolve to feed your spiritual appetite even before you feed your body. If you make that your practice, you will become a spiritual person, which is exactly what Christ wants all of us to be. Receive now the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.